Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. So uh, Jacob, by way of introduction, can you talk about the the work that you've done sort of leading up to this point in terms of, if you were to describe it, what's the thread that you've sort of kept on pulling or the question that you've kept on asking or, or the focus that you really uh, spent your time on? Sure. So since my days working on foreign interference at Google, I've seen the tech industry caught in the crosshairs of a new geopolitical landscape where governments view technology companies as both proxies and targets of their respective national power. I spent most of my time there leading the company's internal efforts to uh, develop policy, a policy philosophy for how to deal with thorny issues on foreign interference and disinformation in a way that's both effective as well as consistent with America's free speech traditions. Things probably evolved a little bit since my time there, but the basic approach which remains uh, transparently published externally, uh, was to focus on detecting patterns of deceptive behavior instead of focusing on inaccurate content. That entailed a lot of pretty sophisticated engineering, which I can't quite get into right here, but I'm confident still holds a lot of promise in addressing those challenges. I also briefly worked on Project Dragonfly a few months before it was leaked to The Intercept. At the time, I actually mentioned to one of my colleagues that the approach basically amounted to piloting a one-company, two-systems model. I was pretty skeptical of that approach, um, that that would be a sustainable approach, and had my own personal and moral uh, reservations about the project. But I also understood the well-intentioned arguments for wanting to have a presence in the world's largest internet market, and ultimately... The experience forever convinced me that the one company, two systems approach does not work. And in fact, I recently wrote a piece about this in foreign policy. Why don't you unpack that, that, that piece and uh, talk about what, what hard decisions companies ha- have to make? So if I, if I could, um, I'd like to start with the, the even bigger picture at work that is, provides a lot of a framing for the environment that tech companies operate in. And The big picture is, as Ben Thompson pointed out this week, that China has been in a cold war with the United States for some time now. And I'm happy to further expand on that a little bit later. But in the last three years or so, we've seen policymakers in the U.S. have increasingly awakened to the comprehensive nature of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. So on both sides of the Pacific, tech companies with operations in both China and the United States are increasingly struggling to comply with values and laws that are systemically in conflict. When you have a system that is predicated on total unfettered compliance with the Chinese Communist Party and mandates by law sweeping censorship restrictions, as well as the collection of information of everyday internet users, And you have another system that's predicated on the protection of that information through the right to free speech, privacy, and protections against government searches and seizures. You have two systems that are fundamentally in conflict. We've seen this tension 
uh, become more concerning in the last two years with China's new national security law and uh, its data security law, which grant the Chinese government the authority to apply its censorship norms extraterritorially. And what this means fundamentally is that we're likely going to see the U.S. and China compete to influence other countries around the world to adopt their respective systems. We've already seen today China actively promoting its quote-unquote China model of authoritarianism as an alternative to the democratic capitalist model promoted by the United States over the last 70 years. Um, and they've made that push in countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, offering very generous deals to build presidential palaces and infrastructure projects, uh, as well as uh, promoting contracts for fiber optic internet cables uh, via Huawei. That means we could be looking at a world in the not too distant future where China envelops other countries behind its great firewall. And for technology companies, that not only means that they will inevitably be caught in the crosshairs and will likely sooner or later be forced to pick a side, but it also means American companies need to think long and hard about whether or not they have any evidence to trust that they will ever get a fair shake and compete on a level playing field against China's domestic champions in a world where the CCP writes the rules of the international system. The question is, in my view, so fundamental to the future of the country's economic security that it would almost be negligent to ignore it. Yeah. And, and so will they all basically be forced to pick the, the American side in, in, your, in your view? I think it's only a matter of time. I think the legal systems are so fundamentally incompatible and the tectonic geopolitical forces at work where when you have uh, the, the world's second largest economy that has deeply vested interests around the world that just like any other country of that size will seek to defend those interests and will want to see a world that looks more like itself I think you are likely to see the United States and China really come to a head in this century. And I like the expression used by members of the European Commission when they refer to China as a systemic rival, because there has been some debate in the foreign policy apparatus in the United States as to whether or not should something happen to Xi Jinping uh, and should there be a regime change or leadership change in China, it might offer uh, a leadership change in China might offer the United States an opportunity to promote a reset with China the way that it sought to promote a reset with Russia in the early 2010s. I think that would be a profound mistake because ultimately the, there would need to be structural changes to China's domestic governance in order for the profound tensions that we're seeing today to actually be resolved. Short of structural changes, I don't think those tensions are going to go away. They're going to keep rubbing against each other, and it's going to make for a very combustible international environment. And I think that is perfectly well encapsulated in the European expression of the systemic, what they call a systemic rivalry. Totally. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions uh, people have when you talk to them about 
you know, tech policy towards China, either misconceptions or misunderstandings, or, or what do they not fully, uh, fully appreciate? So I think in Silicon Valley, a lot of the times companies tend to think, and particularly large ones, understandably so, are focused on quarters and earnings and have relatively narrow views of time. I think that is a risk because ultimately the, that is the draw that uh, leads a lot of companies to try to do business in China because it's a large market and they see an opportunity to increase revenue, which is the natural mission for a lot of companies. I think the, the fallacy in that, re- in that reasoning and the factor that they're underappreciating is that when they do that and at the same time reluctantly collaborate with the U.S. government or, um, or sometimes refuse to collaborate with the U.S. government on certain projects sensitive to national security, I think that is fundamentally against the long-term interests of American companies as well as the economic security of the country. The reason being is that there is more than enough evidence out there to uh, conclude that when China writes the rules, foreign companies don't win. China is a, the, the Chinese Communist Party has within China built a system that favors its domestic companies, that fosters its domestic industries, and it does so by almost every means available. It uses the tools of, dipl- of diplomacy to promote its companies through its One Belt, One Road projects. It uses its intelligence apparatus to acquire sensitive intellectual property from Western companies, which often cost billions of dollars and which allow Chinese companies to save a lot of money in expensive and timely research and development. Um, so it's, they have a whole of the state approach. And in fact, just in the last two weeks, the head of the FBI, Chris Ray, uh, published a speech basically painting color on the scope of China's espionage operations in the United States, citing that uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigations opens a new investigation that is China-related every 10 hours. So it just goes to show the incredible proportion and significance that um, China's espionage operations are in the United States today. When you talk to other experts in the space, what are the common disagreements you, uh, you, you have? Uh, a disagreement that you have, or sort of unanswered questions that that you know need to be play themselves out or, or need to figure out. So interestingly enough, um, a, a very common area of disagreement I find is somewhat generational. You have, on the one hand, many foreign policy thinkers which have developed the theory over uh, several decades that as countries grow richer, they become freer. It's the Starbucks theory and the McDonald's theory that uh, dictators can't rule with an iron fist when their people have access to Starbucks and McDonald's because those people will inevitably want more freedom. And that theory was... Uh, the underpinning of, you know, of U.S. foreign policy towards China 
for many, many years where the US government made the calculated decision that as China would grow richer, it would become freer because its people would want freedom. And therefore, we didn't really have to worry about inviting or encouraging uh, political liberalization within China because that would come um, from the ground up. That theory did not really pan out the way that uh, we expected uh, as a country. It did in some places, obviously, in the most populous country in the world, it did not pan out. And uh, I think there are still some some folks in the national security community that still believe that if only we could sit at a table with China and run through the list of all of our differences, there is an easy way that we could resolve all of our disagreements and go back to a peaceful coexistence. I am less comfortable with that assumption because I think that we were sitting at a table running through our grievances uh, for many, many years. And uh, ultimately, that approach you know, created a piece that was incredibly detrimental uh, to U.S. interests. And uh, just to cite a few examples, yes, we had peace over the last 20 years with China, but 90% of the world's fentanyl, by some accounts, um, uh, is made in China and is all for export uh, to the United States. The, as I mentioned earlier, the FBI now opens a China-related investigation every 10 hours. China's unfair trade practices has produced uh, a bilateral trade deficit in goods that's the size of a G20 economy, just to put things in perspective. They've blocked nearly every American content platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, GitHub, Google, YouTube, Reddit, Netflix. The level of IP theft that they've engaged in has been referred to by the former head of Cybercom as the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. And uh, obviously, most recently, they've sought to export authoritarianism around the world. So I think peace on, on those terms is really not a great deal. I think we can do better as a country. And I think we either have a foreign policy sometimes tough decisions have to be made about whether or not we're going to have a foreign policy that optimizes for peace at any price, or if we're going to have a foreign policy that optimizes for the preservation of democracy. And I think it's a healthy thing for us to revisit some of our calcified assumptions. To talk about what India has done, what, what we can learn from that, and you know what was most interesting or surprising or, or what that means going forward for, for others. So as I mentioned earlier, China launched an unprovoked attack on Indian soldiers, and India responded in part by banning 59 Chinese applications. And in so doing, India showed the world that the emperor has no clothes. They banned TikTok, the sky didn't fall, and their country is safer for it. From an American standpoint, banning an application can seem like a radical move at first glance because it's counterintuitive to our traditions on free speech and free markets. But there are two main issues for why taking a similar step in the United States might make a lot of sense. The first is the U.S. government's longstanding legitimate demands for trade reciprocity. As you know, most American content platforms are banned in China, including the aforementioned cited Facebook, Twitter, GitHub, Google, YouTube, and the like. So the U.S. government deciding to enforce a reasonable principle 
of trade reciprocity, I don't think most Americans would find that to be that unreasonable. And then the second issue is the profound cybersecurity problem that we keep experiencing, often in the form of alleged, quote unquote, accidents, hacks, and, or glitches, where enormous volumes of data on American users are somehow occasionally routed back to Beijing by accident. These cybersecurity risks are much harder to communicate to a large audience like the American public, but they're very, very serious and real nonetheless. Totally. So would U.S. ever do something like this? Or how, how should we respond to TikTok? So let me just preface this with two important caveats. The first is the rationale we take as a country and from a legal standpoint for what we decide matters a lot. I don't think we should ban TikTok because we don't like what is being we don't like what is being said on the platform. For example, there have been allegations that TikTok as a platform, uh, allegations leveled by reporters in the Wall Street Journal, have written about how TikTok as a platform favors and promotes uh, speech on TikTok that is favorable to the CCP and Xi Jinping. In other words, if you're an influencer on TikTok and you are flattering the leadership of Xi Jinping, you are much more likely to go viral than uh, if you don't, than if you're critical. Uh, There have also been allegations that uh, if you defame Donald Trump, who is the the current U.S. sitting U.S. president, or if you defame, if you promote divisions, racial divisions in American society, you are also much more likely to go viral. I think that's highly objectionable, morally, morally despicable, but I don't think that should be the basis for banning a company because that is ultimately about speech. I, uh, I, 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 like many Americans, share a deep skepticism for uh, government interference in the marketplace. Uh, with that being said, I think the two most compelling rationales for which I actually support the US government at this point Um, suspending TikTok's operations in the United States is uh, the fact that I do think there is a fundamentally legitimate uh, case to be made for trade reciprocity. I personally don't understand the rationale for why we would allow TikTok to operate in, in the United States at a time when almost any of our uh, American content platforms are not allowed to operate in China. That is something that uh, is really, it's a cognitive dissonance that I think is really hard for a lot of Americans to reconcile. Uh, And then the second is the cybersecurity problem that I mentioned before, which is there have been very concerning revelations about the incredibly vast scope of uh, data that TikTok collects as an application which goes far beyond the scope of what one would reasonably expect a video music platform to be collecting. As an example, they collect location data every 30 seconds. They collect clipboard data, meaning they are uh, following what people are copying and pasting on their phones on and off the app. That is really unusual behavior for an application that's entirely video-based and that's about um, music videos. So I think the cybersecurity risks are deeply, deeply compelling given that uh, everything that we know about TikTok and that, that everything that we 
know for sure from the intelligence community about China's broader cyber operations and espionage operations in the United States. And I think those two bases, I think, would justify suspending tech stocks operation in the, in, in the United States. I would not suspend them on the basis of speech or uh, government intervention in the market. Is there a world where that would happen? Absolutely. Or what would I think you yeah, I, I think I think they're absolutely. I I don't think we're that far from there right now. I, there, uh, we are increasingly seeing members of Congress raising questions about whether or not this is a debate they should take up. The Indian government did it, and in a way, uh, like I said earlier, the Indian government proved that democracies have a lot of reasons to have enough self confidence to just focus on doing what's right for their country, that to not be so uh, deterred by what repercussions or anger they might incite from Beijing. And, and the, the measure was implemented in India and the world kept turning, the sky didn't fall and India is safer as a result for it now. Totally. You know, we're seeing... You know, on the one hand, sort of an organization like the NBA gets a lot of critique because they focus on social justice issues internally, which is great and, and claim to be all about social justice, but sort of are crickets, you know, as it relates to what's happening in Hong Kong or, or other thing, things in China and people, you know, because they have business interests there. And then, but then on the other hand, you see people like Patrick Carlson who are starting to speak out. Do, do you think we're going to see more CEOs speaking out in that way and, you know, le- less organizations like the NBA you know, being able to be silent on the, 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 that issue? I deeply hope so. I think Patrick Carlson speaking out is incredibly laudable and admirable. As the grandson of two Holocaust survivors, I was absolutely horrified seeing the reporting on the mass sterilization of Uyghur women in these quote-unquote re-education camps. A lot of attorneys are making the case that this meets one of the prongs for uh, genocide under the Geneva Convention. I I would not be surprised if we're going to see a direct correlation between uh, executives that speak out and or rather executives that don't speak out um, with uh, companies that have deeply vested financial interests in China. I think if you're an executive that has a fiduciary duty, uh, you will obviously be um, very, very reluctant to um, be too vocal about these issues, given that China has a long precedent of retaliating against uh, critics of its government. Let's also not forget that, I mean, China has a long pattern of doing this, but a lot of companies are also afraid to get the Sony treatment where they speak out against an authoritarian government and all of a sudden their emails get hacked and uh, uh, chaos inside of the company ensues because a, a lot of sensitive executive emails leak. That was something that was pretty scary. A lot of companies and executives are just scared about getting involved in geopolitics. It's scary to them. A lot of them don't fully understand the dynamics at work. They're not interested in being a part of a geopolitical contest. At the end of the day, though, I, I believe that despite the fact that executives, understandably, don't want to get themselves involved in a geopolitical contest, 
the divergent interests between the United States and China are rapidly ensuring that this geopolitical contest is going to be interested in them and is going to be interested uh, particularly in technology companies. So, you know, it's it's the old saying, I think they can run, but they can't hide because uh, this is an issue that they're going to face with their companies for some time, particularly for technology companies. A related topic here, this nationalism versus globalism divide. Some people are calling for the end of globalization or that we went too far with it. Where does that fit into this conversation or, or, or how do you think about that? Some people have predicted the world economy is currently experiencing the dismantling of globalization. I actually think the reality is a bit more subtle than that. After the Cold War, a lot of foreign policy thinkers assumed that as autocratic countries grew freer, they would inevitably get richer. Today, not only do we know that that's not the case, but we've seen China assert itself internationally in ways that are very hostile to other democracies, as we chatted about a little bit earlier. So I think actually what we're seeing is simply that governments, that democratic governments are realigning their trade and economic policies much more closely in step with their national security priorities. In other words, I think we're likely to look at a world in a few years where democracies will continue trading with each other, but it'll become harder and harder for democratic governments to gerrymander their trade policies from their national security imperatives. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. Going on, on, maybe closing out on just sort of perspective on on some individual companies, how how do you think Facebook is positioned here to to respond uh, with regards to China, with regards to um, taking a hard line, uh, et cetera? So I think uh, Facebook is a company that is actually quite well suited to respond, primarily because, uh, to my knowledge, it doesn't have significant manufacturing uh, operations in China, nor does it have uh, a significant um, software presence in China generally. So for them, it's actually a strategy of trying to encircle China by basically expanding Facebook, the access to the Facebook platform in every country outside of China, essentially. I think the story looks very different for a company like Apple that is much, much more exposed on both the supply and the demand side of their business uh, to China. So on the demand side, they obviously sell a lot of iPhones in China. I think last I checked, uh, China was the third largest market behind the US and Europe, respectively. On the supply side, an enormous amount of their phones are obviously made in China. So in, in a world where... China and the United States are trying to decouple where the United States is trying to reshore its supply chains outside of China, especially for sensitive technologies. Um, I think Apple is likely going to be put in a position where it's going to be asked to work with the government to help figure out how to make that happen. That will probably be a slightly longer term project, but fundamentally, I think this is a risk because decoupling is a race. So nobody wants and likes a race to the bottom. But the reality is that if China decouples from us before we have the ability to decouple from them, China will find itself with an enormous amount of leverage over the United States if we rely on them when they no longer rely on us. And therefore... There is a very strong case to be made that policymakers 
will want Apple to think through expeditiously ways in which it could build resiliency in its supply chains so that they could survive the potential eventual scenario should the Chinese government suddenly tell Apple that it is suspending its manufacturing of phones in China, for example. So I think the, the, the three points that I would make is that uh, the one being that decoupling, that there is a race element to the dynamic of decoupling. The second being that, that the, whatever solution the government ends up adopting in the space, that it will have to be a comprehensive approach for both the supply side. Uh, so something similar to what Japan did, where it's, it, it thinks through incentives it gives to companies to relocate their manufacturing activities outside of China, of China as well as for the demand side, where it forges new partnership with democracies and like-minded countries to ensure that American companies and companies in, based in democratic countries will always have access to a market that is at least uh, as large or larger than China's in order to ensure that those companies from a market cap standpoint and from a scale standpoint will always have the resources to make the investments in moonshot technology in order to stay ahead in the technology race. And the last point that I would make about, um, about the government's efforts on reshoring um, is that I believe Silicon Valley is a prime example in the power of having, of making, of investing in an ecosystem that is geographically concentrated. So I think there'll probably be a temptation on the part of policymakers in DC to invest uh, in, to make reshoring investments and spread those investments across the country because many senators will want investments in their state. But I think ultimately, if you invest in a factory, you'll get a factory. If you invest in an ecosystem, you're going to get an industry. I think having an, ind- having an ecosystem has network effects that are hard to quantify that, uh, as Andreessen Horowitz says, builds moats. It creates an enormous competitive advantage. Uh, and I think that it, w- it could give the U.S. an opportunity to uh, long-term have a globally competitive hub, much like uh, China has done with Shenzhen, which was built over many, many years and uh, countless uh, financial resources into infrastructure and workforce training and the like. Uh, I, I think that's a great place to to, to, to wrap. J- Jacob, this has been a f- fantastic episode. For, for people who want to go deeper into your work, uh, wh- where could you point them? I uh, recently wrote an article on foreign policy that uh, is called Silicon Valley Can't Be Neutral in the U.S.-China Cold War. So I'd encourage listeners to check it out and to follow me on Twitter, at Jacob Helberg. Awesome. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Eric. If you're an early-stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.com.